From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. We can teach you all the skills you want, but if you don't have an innate engine to move, to see that it's time to move on and get the next thing done, probably you're not going to want to be in the software industry. Hi, folks. Justin Schreiber here. My guest today is John Hunter, former CRO of Microfocus. John will be the first to admit that his path to the C-suite had plenty of potholes. He's very open about the fact that fear and anxiety are simply part of the job. But he's also quick to add that what matters is how you respond when things come crashing down. On today's show, John shares a few of the failures that have made him a success, as well as a leadership formula that blends steely determination with a soft touch. Let's jump into the conversation. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Justin. Great to be here. All right, this is going to be a great discussion. I'm going to open up with a question. It's going to sound a lot like a joke that you might tell in a bar or something. Your father was a priest with a PhD. Your mother was a nun with a master in English. What does that make you? Yeah. Uh, Some people were like, uh, that makes you the devil. I mean, you know, how does someone so uh, ridiculous come with such a background. It does turn heads. It's a great dinner conversation starter in case it's a boring event. Um, you know, what the reality is, you know, my parents grew up in the 60s, didn't have a lot of money south side of Chicago. And that's where you got an education and you made a difference. What it did for me was it just gave me uh, an amazing set of uh, parents, leaders uh, to develop me, to help me build self-esteem, to help me round my edges I often refer to my work career as being Alexander the Great, who got to come home to Aristotle at the end of the day to kind of think deeply about the world and think about people and ethics. Um, so it's just, uh, you know, it's different and unique, but also very much um, important to, 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 to have allowed me to become the best version of myself. Uh, that's a, that's a great analogy, Alexander the Great and Aristotle. And, and also, you are not without your own battle wounds, just like Alexander the Great. I understand that you have not one, but two flesh wounds inflicted by human bites, of all things. This is a first. Yeah. Again, it's another one of those uh, <laughs> head turners when you're, uh, you know, when the conversation stalls out. Yeah. You know, my, you know, look, I was cut from a different cloth. You know, my brother went to Exeter. I tell people all the time, my sister's heart went to Harvard. My parents were these super cerebral, smart people. But I, I was more of the street tough, street smart guy, gotten a lot of scraps, had a bit of a ego growing up. And I just found myself whenever I've seen injustice or something getting picked on that didn't make sense. You know, I, I just didn't stand by. I jumped in. And so I had two examples where getting in some scraps, um, <laughs> the the other guy decided to to sink their teeth into my arm and into my and right below my shoulder and took a big chunk of me with them. But uh, I've since learned to resolve conflicts differently as I've grown. All right, but the uh, the key point there, human injustice was being committed, and you stepped in and uh, and took care of business. That's my version of it. That's absolutely right. Uh, you know, I, I just had a lot of confidence, and um, you know, I wasn't afraid to mix it up. And to this day, I mean, you know, metaphorically, you know, I, I do tend to 
take bold stands on things. And I think that's, that's where it comes from. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that, uh, that spirit to stand up and stand against, it's something that's inherent in people. And you pull that through from childhood. It's, it's oftentimes hard to teach that, but if you can learn to to channel it in a constructive way, so powerful. Well, that's right. And I think that is absolutely what you'll see from my parents who took a stand on things and, um, you know, spoke eloquently. Um, my father helped um, with Martin Luther King when he was coming to Chicago back in the day. And so I do think there is a boldness in there and there's just a sense of right and wrong um, and that you're not going to be quiet. And I think it helps to have that instilled in you at a very young age. Um, and that's and I, I do give them a lot of credit for that. You also talk a lot about the Irish kitchen as having shaped you in your youth. What is the Irish kitchen and how did that impact you? Well, first of all, I believe when you're in these bigger software leadership jobs, our main role is teaching and getting people to learn, especially salespeople who are not always going to pay attention. You always say they have the attention span of a gnat. So I'm always looking for pictures and colors and metaphors and stories to teach. And so I found that my personal story, my mom was the oldest of nine from the south side of Chicago. Uh, For those who are listening who have these kind of immigrant family backgrounds, Italian, Greek, et cetera, they know what I'm talking about, which is, you know, these aunts of mine were just super direct. Like, hey, John, you're losing your hair. You didn't call your mother back. What's wrong with you? Just boom, right in your face every day. And of course, my poor wife, she comes from a whole different culture out in Scottsdale, Arizona. So her view was, oh my God, these are heathens. Who are these people? And I would be like, no, you don't understand. They really love me. Therefore, they give it to me very direct because they care about me. They want me to go into the world knowing every, you know, I has been dotted, T's been crossed. And um, and then you think about it in company culture. What are we trying to establish? Safety. We want to say really authentic things without scaring anybody, without harming anybody. That's where productivity can be really, really successful. And so I found success. People have taken the Irish kitchen and they've made it their own, They've come up with their own teams and their own personal experiences. So I, I really like that. Um, and it was really true in my case. These uncles and aunts of mine, they really loved me, but they were going to tell me how it was, um, whether I liked it or not. And it made me a better person. You know, I, uh, I find that when people grow up in environments where they get direct feedback, oftentimes they view that as a sign that someone cares about you. They, they took the time to actually make a comment, um, a meaningful comment to help you. And it can also be challenging for people that haven't grown up in that kind of an environment and haven't gotten the direct feedback when they do get into the workforce to start getting that kind of feedback. And so um, it's interesting how different people express love and concern in different ways. But if you get that as a kid, you automatically equate that to, oh, this person cares enough about me to tell me what they really think. Well, it's really true. And you see it, for example, in software companies like Israeli software companies, because the majority of them grew up in that world. So I I really relish it and cherish it. But you got to be careful because if you didn't come, like, look at my wife, right? She was absolutely horrified uh, at the way these people talk to them. And when we moved to New York for CA, we had a similar experience. You know, the New Yorkers were just in my wife's face right away. She learned later to really appreciate it, that these people actually cared about her and cared about me. And in business, it's the same way. You know, we have people coming into these direct cultures without the safety, without that connection being made, you're going to scare them. You're going to build fear into the culture. 
they're going to feel depleted and they're not going to be at their best self. So you got to be really careful with it. So you brought out an interesting point there, which is it's okay to give the direct feedback. One, if the person, you know, is used to getting that kind of direct feedback, but two, if they know where it's coming from and if there's an environment of trust that's been established, how do you lay down that foundation of trust in the first place? T-I-M-E. There's no replacement. There's no secret sauce. There's no book you're going to read. There's no app you're going to buy. You've got to go spend time with people and you got to listen to them. I wrote a blog recently called Go In Like a Lamb, Go Out Like a Lion when you take over a new job because you've got to resist your ability to talk and to solve a problem. Especially if you don't know what people have been through. If you're taking over a new team or a new division or a new company, um, you, I call it becoming a cultural anthropologist, You know, going in and really deeply saying to yourself, what happened here? And then being vulnerable along the way. Hey, I've made mistakes too. Here are some mistakes I've made. Here are some issues in my own life that didn't go great. Um, and then being exceptionally transparent to get that safety built as, as you're moving forward. I think those are the building blocks for safety to be built. It takes some time. Try to do it as fast as you can, but you can't skip that step. It just requires that kind of input and listening. Yeah, I like the point about being a cultural anthropologist, really getting underneath what makes a person tick, what they're comfortable with. This goes both directions. I think that from a an institutional perspective right now at this moment in time, we tend to skew towards using tact, um, maybe wrapping our words in a, uh, a soft cushion of appropriateness um, so that we don't startle the person. That actually can be unnerving to someone that's used to getting it straight, like you've described. In my own career, uh, I have a colleague who grew up in, um, in the kind of environment that you're describing. He's from Boston, and uh, people just told you what they thought. And our first interactions, I was trying to be very tactful. It actually was unnerving for him because to him, that was a sign that I didn't trust him enough to give it to him straight. And when I realized that and that I had the latitude to just be more upfront and blunt and that he appreciated that and that actually strengthened the relationship, it kind of changed our dynamic in a positive way. Well, that's really true. I mean, you, you get a sense also that you're being manipulated because you know this isn't the truth. And that's all about authenticity. It's, it, that's where safety is. If you're using some fancy words or you're using a lot of legal words. I mentioned earlier, right? My brother went to Exeter. So I grew up with a lot of these Yale and over Exeter Ivy League kids. And sometimes they would just be missing in that world of academia, the kind of directness in the business world. And that's what I would always listen for. Like, hey, these are fancy words. Um, it's maybe more than you need. And it just makes you feel not safe. You, you could be manipulative. It could be, hey, you're really thinking something else. And I want to pull that out of and that's where, um, um, you know, it's really in different parts of the country. I'll give you another example, Justin. Um, I love doing this one on stage. When you go and you ask an audience in, the, in the California or the Western United States, and I say I'm coming to dinner, I'm inviting you to dinner, and you say I'm going to do the best I can. Are you coming? And everyone shakes their head. No, you're not coming. But they're afraid to say no. And this inability to say no culturally in certain states and certain countries is really an issue because that is where, where the self-esteem comes to bear and other psychological fundamentals about making someone else perceived to be uncomfortable. And then it does hinder safety on both ends, as you mentioned. Yeah, you're right. There is a confidence issue. I don't want the person to 
get mad at me because I'm going to reject their invitation. So I'm actually not going to tell them straight up that I can't come. Um, I'm just afraid of, of how they're going to judge me as a result of that. That's right. So guess what? It's, you see it in sales leadership all the time. So you make a bunch of partial commitments all over the place. You, it can really wear down. You see those people, they stop becoming decisive. They become frozen. They become less confident, slightly anxious or, or depressed because we've gotten into this pattern of telling everybody yes, but in our heart of hearts, we're not really going and we feel bad about it. And it can manifest in sales leadership big time. Can you make that number? Yeah, I'll go figure it out when they know in their heart, I can't make that number. You know what I mean? <laughs> so we say yes, and we try to back into that yes when we should have had the self-esteem and the confidence say, you know, hey, boss, I just can't make that number. The math doesn't add up. Let's talk about it. Yeah. All right. So straight shooting guy, been involved in some scraps early on. It The, the picture is coming together. In college, you majored in criminal justice and police science. So you're definitely on this path. How in the world did you go from there to landed in sales? Well, remember now, I had my parents behind me, my dad, you know, I was just struggling in college in the beginning. So I'm just one glad I stuck with it because a lot of guys in my background would have just maybe not, not have done that. I could have gone down some other darker routes. Um, so I just had this, this higher level uh, concept that university for me was to go learn how to think critically. Um, and I often speak publicly about it now that the two things I use from university the most in business is psychology and statistics, summary level data and uh, how people work. And you get taught that. I didn't know that at the time. I was smart enough at the time to just keep going, go learn, have great teachers. You know, criminal justice is a great platform to go take on some gnarly problems, juvenile justice, recidivism, you know, um, all kinds of tough subjects. That made you think critically. And I thought a little bit of a lot of relatives in law enforcement and I have a great deal of respect for law enforcement. But the reality was uh, I had a buddy of mine who was selling um, Windows training services over the phone. I jumped in there and um, I did well at it for about six to nine months. People were listening to the words coming out of my mouth, my objection handling, my retorts, my, my flowing conversations with the headset on you know, dialing for dollars. And, and I've often now preached on this subject, when you really want to know what you're good at, start listening to what people say to you. And if you get three times, something three times back, write it down. So that was, I got about three of those in that experience. Hey, John, you're pretty good. I didn't think I was good, Justin. I thought it was terrible. Um, but I had other people saying, hey, dude, you're pretty good at this. One, John, you were pretty good today, too. You're good with customers, three. And I went, huh, maybe there's something here. I just couldn't sit still, Justin. I was walking up and down the hallway. My cords was like plugging out of the wall. So I knew I needed to get to an outside position. And that's when I applied for, to computer associates to a woman named Jocelyn Farina because um, I knew I needed to get something out, outdoors. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. There's a great book. It's called 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. I recommend it to everyone. I feel like it covers all the bases in terms of what great leaders do. But uh, commitment number eight, I know this because I just studied it with my team this week, is 
reside in your zone of genius. And one of the exercises that it recommends, and I, I fully endorse this, is go to 10 people who know you and just ask them straight out, what am I good at and what energizes me? It's an uncomfortable thing to do because most of us don't want to just, to your earlier point, be straight up and ask a, a direct question. Um, I was nervous when I did it, but I did it and I was surprised at the feedback that came back. Some of it I kind of was aware of, but there were some surprises in there about things that people saw in me that I didn't necessarily recognize in myself. And so that idea of triangulating, hearing multiple people reinforce the same thing is a great way to zero in on what you do well. And then if you can spend the majority of your time there, whether it's the career that you're in or just your daily activity, you're going to be happier and you're going to be more successful. That's exactly right. Uh, I'll pick up the book because I'm always trying to get better. Uh, I'll give you another quick example of that, too. People often have told me you're really good at public speaking. Um, In this, you know, did did that come naturally? Well, nothing just comes totally naturally. But I remember giving the best man speech at my brother's wedding. I had never prepared a talk before. I was nervous as all hell because all these Ivy League kids were going to be there who I held on a pedestal. And I didn't think I was as smart as they were. So I developed this speech basically um, about a JD because my brother's a lawyer and he married a doctor and she's Jewish. So it was this joke about being, you know, she thought she was marrying a Jewish doctor, but she married a Jewish doctorate. I wove in a few other points. I got a huge round of applause. And two of those Exeter kids came over to me to my dad and said, your son is a really good public speaker. And I never would have had that affirmation, but I wrote, you know, I mentally took that and I built on it from there. Like, hey, I'm, there may be something here. And, th- and that was a safe yet yet um, important place of, of respect where it came from. So um, I, I'm telling that to people all the time. Now. I don't have the book, but I'll get it. But, you know, hey, go look for that. Get a personal board of directors. Don't listen to everybody. I do see that a lot, too. People listening to recruiters, listening to your neighbor, listening to your boss's boss who don't really know you. Don't like those inputs coming in. I like inputs coming from people that we respect, that truly know you. And then you can form um, some patterns around that. There's something else in there that you you alluded to. You had to put yourself out there when you gave that speech. You were nervous. There was some fear. You got past that. And as a result of that, you discovered something about yourself. That fear may have prevented you from doing that. You talk a lot about facing your fears and using them as as springboards. Can you talk a little bit more about that concept? Yeah. Well, every 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 question you and I have been going back down around you know, when it comes to whatever happened to me, um, what I learned from it, fear was in the middle of change, and we all view change as losing something. And you know, I've gotten more and more educated on the platform. Um, the latest I've been on on fear has been around the courage needed to build these companies and their operating plans and the business plans. So they're they're sustainable for the long haul. And I believe there's elements of fear that comes into the top level of these companies because of um, money or power and other constructs. And, uh, and there's this concept of productivity. You know, can we get our people truly to be highly productive without fear. I believe the world is divided into two camps on that. I'm in the camp that it can be done without fear. Um, you know, People who are all in on something are not doing it out of fear. They're doing it because they're all in. So that's one element of fear. The other fear, though, is the fear of change, whether it be giving the speech 
Um, I went and sold water beds during my last year in college. I worked in Hialeah, Florida. I was the only English speaking white guy. And me and my roommate had a great experience of going down there. Um, and I had, to, and I got four weeks of training, Justin, and I had to go on the floor, 20 years old, and go sell. Now, because people have always asked me, hey, with these intellectual parents, where did you learn sales? And I didn't know about that until I went through an LD, LDP, what they call a Jahari window exercise that teaches you, similar to your book, um, how did you become you? And it teaches you how to go look at those examples. And I'll tell you right now, man, going down to Florida, selling waterbeds um, to the you know to the Cubano community, um, where I got my face kicked in, you know, every day for a month, and then I figured it out. My self-esteem went through the roof. My confidence went through the roof, and I didn't even really appreciate it until years later when I went back through inventorying what what, what I went through, and I did remember how scared I was getting on that plane. Scared I was moving to New York, working in operations at CA, um, you know, just just fear. But, you know, how do we acknowledge it? It's not going to go away. It's part of the process. It's a good thing. Um, but yet, you know, power through it and have and encourage is the key to take that next step in those, you know, situations. Going back to the CA experience, you were there for almost two decades, I think 18 years. So a good long run, a lot of success there. That was the job you almost didn't get, though. Uh, you you kind of blew the first interview. Can you can you tell that story and, and kind of how it all turned out the way it did? Yeah. So so I, I get my resume in, which I embezzled, you know, embellished a little bit about my successes. I was selling training to Fortune 500 companies, which I really was, you know, it was as as, as deep as that. But I get this interview with this woman, Jocelyn Farina. I can remember remember it like it was yesterday. And she stops me halfway through the interview and says, you really don't know what we do, do you? And I looked at her and I took it on the chin. I said, you know what? I don't. But after listening to you for 20 minutes, this is, this is where I'm meant to be. This is exciting. You got to let me come back and properly do this. And she, she, she's a very direct woman. She said, John, you know, don't call us. We'll call you. We got a lot of people in that waiting room who've been doing this. I said, I said those guys have been doing the same thing wrong for 30 years. You got to let me come back, which she did with a gentleman named Dave Schwickerath, who's, you know, worked for Joe Sexton. You know, these are all legends in the business. And, um, and I wrote a paper with my dad's help called Eat What You Kill. And it was my interpretation of what the founder, Charles Wong, was trying to build culturally about a low entitlement, get the job done, winner, make a million dollars, loser, make zero, low salaries. I think I made 20 grand as a salary. Huge commission, great club trips, great experiences, buy lots of companies. Um, that was that's what I built it around, and they loved it, and um, I got the job. So it was uh, it was number one being direct about the fact you weren't prepared, but then going above and beyond and actually putting some substance behind the words that made it happen. Yeah, and I really do think those words resonated. It wasn't just hey, Long Island based company mainframe. It was hey, eat what you kill. It really was what, um, to a lot of extent, it's not just Charles Wong, it's Joe, you know, these are all meat eating, junkyard dog, culturally, you know, wording for sales leaders who want, uh, not, not everyone would get that, I guess. And so I think there was the, the, the honesty, the aggressiveness, resilience, not to just quit, 
go build a presentation that's thoughtful, but actually really connect with what they're trying to do. And, um, and you know, we, we remain close. Those are all great relationships of mine to this day, which is awesome. So uh, that was a that was a paper that you put together in your early 20s. You continue to embrace it as you have risen up the ranks in sales. What has um, eat what you kill or I know you like to reduce things to uh, uh, four letter acronyms. So uh, E.W.Y.K. What does that mean to you now as a sales executive? And, and what do you share with your, your teams? Yeah. You know, it's just really recently where, you know, I started thinking more about it as I started giving back and doing more advising and, you know, teaching, um, you know, eat what you kill to me has to be the heart rate of growth companies. It's just the pace of which the technology industry moves at. Uh, I've written about this as well, right? This is the most competitive industry in the world because there's so much innovation, there's so much change, there's so much M&A. That if you're coming from another space and you have some kind of, you know, uh, pace that's just what you think is normal, it's just not going to work in software. You just have to have this insanely high engine of getting the job done, you know, getting to the next thing. Um, now, what I learned later was to balance that with thoughtfulness and strategy and scale and delegation and best practices. But you can't become too much of the professional operator and lose that heart rate, that heartbeat, that sense of purpose, urgency, enthusiasm. And that's why I've, I've reconnected with it. And I'm saying, look, we can teach you all the skills you want. But if you don't have an innate engine to move, to see that it's time to move on and get the next thing done, you're probably not going to want to be in the software industry. I also, uh, what comes through with that is this notion that there is no entitlement. It's a pure meritocracy. If you're not out there taking out deals on your own and basically earning your living based on the the effort that you've made yourself, it's probably not the right place for you. That's right, Matt. You've asked me about ten, four, two, and one. Um, that's where it came from. So I knew that if I to avoid getting my legs chopped off, get my head ripped off, right? We we were always looking at each other's staplers and calculators because I was like, hey, that guy leaves, I get I get his stapler. I'm going to get his monitor. Because it was so brutal. And I'm not saying this is the best practice. I'm just giving, the, giving it to you straight about the accountability, the meritocracy, the, um, um, you know, the results-driven nature of it all. There was no overlays. There was no um, massive salary to make you comfortable. It was all designed for getting the job done. And so that's why I developed my methodology of staying in front of the axe man. You know, that was 10 visits a week, four new contacts a week, two technology events a week, and one line of business meeting a week. And I did that myself as a sales rep. I then subsequently built it out as a management system with sellers as I became a manager. But it came from your point of having that heart rate say, look, I need to be ahead of everybody else you know, up the chain. And so I'm always bringing in revenue. I'm always bringing in new customers. Uh, and that's where it, that's where it came from, that culture. As I've talked to a lot of sales leaders, they all have their own version of the 10, 4, 2, and 1. It's not that 10, 4, 2, and 1 are the magic you, secret to crack the code. It is that you took the time to codify your approach and you were religious about um, adhering to that week over week. And that's what I hear again and again, people backing into the formula that works for them 
and having the fortitude when everyone else has left the office to say, I'm only at nine and I got to be at 10. I'm going to stick it out in the office until I get to 10 and doing that week over week over week. And after a lifetime, it adds up. Totally, Justin. And here's the thing for leaders, sales managers, who often are not groomed properly, not taught properly how to shift from individual contributor to manager. I'm with you. If they say, hey, John, we don't think 10, 4, 2, 1 is great. I'm always like, okay, terrific. So what are your metrics? Share them with me as I've gone to new place and new place. But we're going to have metrics. We're going to have goals. What I'm then looking for as a leader, as a frontline manager, hey, we came up short this week. Why? I didn't get, I got nine. I got two. I got six of this or blue. I'm red, green, and yellow on these different metrics. And I'm hopeful that these leaders, these managers become better coaches to say, hey, look, instead of just saying you're in red, you suck. It's, hey, what happened last week? You know, taking 10, 4, 2, and 1, and then looking at the pipeline, to me, there is magic in those sessions that often gets missed because we fall in love with only the number as opposed to the coaching around the number. And that's, that's I'm with you. You, you, can, you can mix those numbers around. It's the coaching on why we hit them, which is awesome, and why we didn't, which is equally informative. Uh, you, you touched on another important point, and I brought this up in the past, but you hand a manager a set of numbers and they'll do one of two things. They'll either use it to bludgeon their sales team about why they've messed up, or they'll use that to say, hey, this tells me where I need to help my person. And um, now I'm going to step in and help. Uh, An analogy that I love is uh, Steve Kerr talking to Steph. And uh, there's a great recording on YouTube where Steph comes off the court. And first of all, Steve is very positive and uh, pumps Steph up. And then he says, here's a couple of specific things that I think you can work on. And Steph takes that positive that he gets back on the court and he does his thing. I think that's aspirationally where the manager needs to be. And when you hand a manager numbers, you need to be careful about how you use them to build a team up rather than to tear them down. Right. And it's it's glaringly missing. It is the number one culprit on unwanted turnover. It's the number one culprit for productivity gaps. Uh, I just wrote another article called why participation rates should be your number one metric as a company. How many people making plan? It should be 70 percent or above. And it because it prevents against favoritism and tyrannical leadership who just churn their people. And we've got to attack it. Um, it. It can be done. The coaching can be done. Some of those people are not meant to be leaders of people. I heard an interesting metaphor, Justin, you may appreciate the other day that says the individual rep. Is a visual of success is coming off the Matterhorn at Disneyland. You know you're ready to be a leader when your exhilaration and warmth comes from watching your team get off the Matterhorn ride at Disneyland. You get you get more joy from it. And I've seen too many frontline managers who are still thinking they're on the Matterhorn themselves, and they're looking in the mirror and they're looking at their W two. I mean, we've got to really look at how they're wired to see the success off the team and to generally care about each member of that team. And if you don't believe in them, why are they on the team? And this idea of inviting people to their next future, you know, in a very dignified way is actually very humane to make sure that we are running um, a business with positivity and reinforcement and coaching, which is also often um, misunderstood. That's John Hunter, former CRO of Microfocus. When we come back, John explains why his 18-year run at CA was almost uprooted before it started. 
Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. One of John's redeeming qualities is his willingness to acknowledge his mistakes and fix them. That was on full display when John interviewed at CA. His approach to recovering from a major stumble has become an integral part of his success. Let's get back to the conversation. So CA was a great training ground. It's really where you came into your own and you worked with some phenomenal people. They became mentors. Craig Corgan was one of those guys. What did Craig teach you? Well, I mean, one, if you really want to be a mentor or a great coach to someone, it's not about giving them easy things to do. You know, I, I sometimes I see people, oh, this guy's a big believer in me. So it just gives you accolades and attaboys or girls. I mean, that wasn't Greg. Very professional, rarely used the F word, which is uncommon in software leadership circles. I often, I once asked him about that. And he said, you know, John, if, if you use it too much, it'll lose its effect. So you knew if you heard an F word from this guy, you know, we're in DEFCON 1. We had a problem. Um, he taught me about a meritocracy. Uh, everyone listening who worked at CA in those years knows we had the uh, portal, performance portal. Um, and we put every metric was ranked and you knew you were. And every month, everyone in the company would race to their screens to see where they were, no matter what division you were in. And I think creating, you know, living your life and building a meritocracy where you don't go up by who you know, but you go up by what you've done and you've done consistently. And, uh, you know, and I saw I saw him role model that, too. I had an example where uh, when I worked in headquarters, we had a really prominent VP struggling with their numbers, trying to smooth a little bit. And, you know, Greg looked at him and said, hey, bud, you're number one in my heart, but you're number 37 in my business. And he was able to separate the personal, you know, uh, love and respect from, hey, we're not getting the job done. And I think that's that's role modeling behavior I've taken to heart. Um, you know, he never would give you a job easy. He rotated me. He um, always was pushing me. And I, I got frustrated, Justin, with that. I was, I was like, man, can't this guy you know, just give me an attaboy? But in, in, in retrospect, he was really setting me up to be successful for the long haul. A lot of that came from his 20 years at IBM. Um, but uh, yeah, he's the one that moved me to New York. Um, he, he gave me, you know, I told him the biggest issue was with my wife. Um, and he said, here's how it's going to work. You know, your wife, the first week's going to cry every night. Second week, a little bit less. And by the end of month one, you know, she won't be crying at all. And when I ask you to leave again, she's not going to want to leave. And sure enough, Justin, that's exactly what happened. So uh, he made a big impact on me, my family, and uh, you know he passed away from leukemia a few years ago, and uh, you know I miss him um, to this day. All right, I wanted to share a a quote with you. I know it's a, a favorite quote that you've got. It kind of captures this idea that a sales leader needs to be needs to be tough, needs to be focused on the outcomes, but at the same time needs to have soft hands because they're dealing with people and and have the judgment and discretion to do the right thing. So let me see if uh, through the magic of technology, we can bring this up here and you'll recognize this quickly. Bond, this may be too much for a blunt instrument to understand, but arrogance and self-awareness seldom go hand in hand. So you want me to be half monk, half hitman? Any thug can kill. I want you to take your ego out of the equation and to judge the situation dispassionately. All right. 
so uh, this idea, this idea of a, a hitman and a monk, what does that mean to you? Well, just listen to the words, right? Any thug can kill. That can really translate into sales leadership, right? Anyone can just get the number done. Just get the deal done. No, I'm going to get the deal done, but I'm going to piss off the customer. Oh, I'm going to get the deal done. I'm going to churn half my team. So to me, you know, that's how I like to teach. I'll do, use a video clip like that for, for people who are going from director to VP or VP to SVP. That scene really does crystallize what you have to, the way you need to be thinking in order to scale. Yeah, we got to get bad guys. But at that point in time, you're not closing every deal yourself. There's a balance between how you build a system, how you plan for next year's plan, how you look at your calendar and color code it. So you're going to the critical meetings. And you'll hear it a lot from sales leaders who just don't want to go to the next level. Like, I'm just going to just let me go sell. To me, that's the metaphor. Just let me go kill bad guys. And, you know, and they can't take their ego out of the equation. And they're not judging the situation dispassionately. And I just think that's where the next level of leaders to uh -huh. go to the CRO position. I believe it's that ability to execute tactically and think strategically that that scene um, reinforces. And sometimes it's better coming from a movie quote than it is for me. People just tend to di di digest these ideas better. It's hard to compete with Daniel Craig. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, I wanted to close off on one final topic. It's this notion of failure and how failure in some cases just flattens somebody and in other cases becomes the stepping stone to greatness. First of all, uh, can you share, would you be willing to share a failure in your life? And what did you do with that failure? Well, first of all, I think if it doesn't affect anyone, some amount, I don't care how trained you get, I think you've lost your heart. You've, you've hardened off a part of your soul that is bad for you. So I'm telling myself all the time, uh, I expect to come up short to feel like crap and then get better incrementally. And I think the more mentally tough you get, I judge mental toughness by how well you rebound. But you're going to go down. If you ever watch Pele in soccer, he was notorious for hitting the ground and literally bouncing back up immediately, you know, because he just he knew he was going to go down, bouncing up. Um, so I think one, we're always going to sting. My, I had a lot of stings, man. I mean, look at Dave Schwickerath, who I give a ton of credit for in this world, put me into a job at CA that he then took me out of in six months. He put me into a renewal job where I had no spreadsheet, I had no computer, and I was asked to go build off all these renewal things. I was terrible at it. I screwed him up. Uh, Jocelyn was frustrated with me. And he, you know, this is where you got to give Dave a lot of credit. He pulled me aside in person and said, here's the deal. We're taking you out of this job. And I'm going to put you in Oklahoma. And you're going to go into a brand new division we're creating that sells new products to new customers. And it's going to be flipping hard. And I know you don't like this. So I want you to go home, drink a six pack of beer, kick your dog and decide if you want to do it or, or leave. And I had no, you know, nothing going on at home. You know, I, I was single. I was, um, I did, I drink, I always tell the story. I drink a six pack of Keystone Light. It's all I could afford. And I went back and I took that job. And to your point, so I got stung. I got down. I sucked it up. It was delivered to me with um, dignity. And then I went and learned how to sell new business for the next three to five years. I can't remember what it was because Dave knew I was better suited for that. And it is really the engine I run on now. It's a new business, new logo, 
you know, opening up new territories. And that was from Dave basically firing me and failing, but having the self-esteem to rebound from it. Um, I'll give you one more example. I think it's an important one. At one point, I had a German English speaking boss. A lot of people know him, Andre Kunin out there. Hello, Andre. Andre had an MBA, and when he took over the region in the Western United States, he did something very clever. He inventoried everybody. He asked them and took spreadsheets. What, how do people view other people? And I was a brash, kick-ass sales manager, had great numbers, and I thought Justin, everyone loved me. Well, of course, so here comes Andre with his spreadsheet, and he's saying, oh, so you are John DeHunter. Uh, not very many people like you. You are like, uh, how do you say Maverick? He was searching for his English a little bit. So I knew it was safe. I knew my numbers were good. So I knew this wasn't about firing me. But I just got this dose of self-awareness that I was pissing off half of my colleagues. They had, you know, I was too much, too much energy, too much bravado. And Andre gave this to me. And I drove home that day. And I felt like it was a failure. I felt like a failure. And I told a mentor friend of mine, I said, I met my new boss today. And he said, what do you, I go, he called me a maverick, which I think is a cow. And he uh, said, you know what a maverick really is? It's a subset of the herd that walks into a storm. It's actually leaders in the herd and they can actually lead the cattle to safety. He said, you had your first self-aware moment, but don't lose your conviction of who you are. And so that was a real another moment that I've used to share with people. Because I, I saw Justin as a complete failure that I, I was so embarrassed, hurt, um, but I, I was strong enough to then recover from it and make some changes. Yeah. And then Top, came, Top Gun came along and Maverick became the highest compliment you could give to anybody. Uh, I certainly <laughs> didn't identify with that Maverick. I thought I was a cow. I thought I pissed off everybody. <laughs> and my date. My boss just called me a cow. You know, it's not going well when your boss calls you a cow. No. <laughs> Um, well, uh, it's been a great discussion. I always like to end with the same question. And that is, as you look back across your life, if you had to boil it down to one thing, what's that one thing that's made the biggest difference for you? It's just been able to be on a platform to help people. Um, you know, the notes that I get from sellers, leaders, marketers, whatever they say, you know, from some of the stuff we've done together, how it's impacted their lives at work. And in and home is made it made it, you know, the, the calling come more and more true. And we're doing it by selling and solving problems for customers. But you know, people are making money, they're setting goals, they're helping their parents, they're paying off loans. You know, as we get older, they're 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 having health issues. And by a lot of these techniques and these tools, people have been able to achieve their dreams and their successes. And I've played a small part of it. Um, it's in the, on the dark days, you know, you pull out those letters, those emails. And they go, man, this is this has been what it's all about. It's just helping people be better versions of themselves. Well, John, that's a great one to end on. Thanks so much for sharing your stories and your advice. And uh, best of luck to you in the adventures that lie ahead. Thank you, Justin. It's been a pleasure, man. Great job. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. 
This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.